Skull Rock Podcast is brought to you by the generosity of the following companies. Sure, sound extraordinary. To podcasters, recording musicians, and streamers who are looking for studio quality audio at home or on the road, the Sure MV7 Podcast Kit is a premium all-in-one solution inspired by the legendary Shure SM7B and is designed to address the versatility required by modern creators. For more on the Shure MV7 podcast kit, visit shure.com, S-H-U-R-E.com, or click the link in our show notes. Shure, sound extraordinary. And by The Old Mill Press, publishing beautifully crafted books that illuminate our world. To learn more, visit theoldmillpress.com. And by listeners like you. Hey, this is artist Sue Blanchard, and you're listening to the Skull Rock Podcast. Skull Rock Podcast, talking all things Disney, with your hosts, El John Go and Dave Bossert. Welcome back to another edition of Skull Rock Podcast, the show about all things Disney and pop culture. Every week, we take you behind the scenes of some of your favorite Disney films, theme park attractions, performances, books, music, as well as what's streaming, what's playing in theaters, and what's going on in the universe of entertainment. I'm Al John Goh, musician and longtime Disney, Marvel, Star Wars, and pop culture fan. You can contact me, Al John, A-L-J-O-N, at SkullRockPodcast.com. And I'm Dave Bossard, artist, filmmaker, author, and welcome to the Skull Rock Podcast. If you love Disney and pop culture, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. You can also like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can also email me at Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com. Uh, Al John, how was your vacation to Walt Disney World? Oh, wow, man. Great. It was... Uh interesting to see the theme park from the eyes of my children for the first time awesome yeah right and we shared a little bit about that you know you've been through it many times over there at disneyland this is the first time for us my wife and i and 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 the code name for the kids are boo and jack jack so boo and jack jack um had their very first disney experience i was able to record them uh, their looks on the rides on Dumbo, of course, he had to do the Dumbo. The uh, Jack Jack got his hair cut for the first time for the first time because wow. he had he had the long locks because of the pandemic, right? Wow. So he went in, got his hair cut over there, Main Street, and I uh, got the little locks of hair and his first set of mouse ears. It was amazing, and uh, she got to meet all of her favorite Disney princesses and freaked out. She freaked out because. Uh, and- because she was just like sensory overload because she loves Anna and Elsa. She sings Frozen all the time and she met Anna and Elsa and I think she was just overjoyed and she was looking out their windows and everything. I don't think she could handle it because she got so much overload. How, how was the park this time of year? Was it was it very crowded? Was it moderately crowded? Walt Disney World was crowded, Dave. It was crowded. Really? Wow. Yeah, it was crowded. I, and did you take the kids on like Pirates of the Caribbean oh, yeah. and some of those rides? Oh yeah, we went on we went on all the the kid rides that we could possibly do and we did the adult ride swap over there for Guardians of the Galaxy Cosmic Rewind. And okay. That that blew my mind. That to me was just the thrill of a coaster so unique and so well done. So hats off Disney. You 
the kids weren't the kids didn't go on that. No, though. you do the no. the you go there and you wait in the queue and then you get in the queue and and then one parent rides and the other one takes the kids and then you swap and then the other one rides and oh that so you you just wait in line once yeah right? so you wait in line once wow. mm-hmm. which is really that's cool a, that's awesome yeah but uh, they rode on um they rode on pirates and haunted mansion they weren't scared at all they thought it was very entertaining so. did, did they go on Peter Pan. Oh yeah, we went on Peter Pan. It was the longest yeah. wait by far. It was the longest wait. Um, wow! And then, but they have it. They have an indoor queue line now. They do. They do. It's yeah. indoors, somewhat. You know, they're still because of the way things are are done over at Disney these days. You know, they were, as I say, they were all waiting in the yard. So not only were they in the queue, but they were spilled out into the yard. So we're waiting. <laughs> you yeah. know, okay. even with Lightning Lane that they have the improved Lightning Lane, it's still quite a quite a wait we did it's a small now, uh, world were, and all that were you using the genie uh app oh, or yeah you pretty much have to do that you have to you have to use park reservations so you have to reserve what park you're going to go in what day you can't park hop until after two you have to use the genie app when you get on prim, on the park property so that you can go ahead and book your your rides and everything in advance. You only get like X amount of rides per day. And then after you exhaust those, you can kind of re up and do some more. So, um, but, but you have to pay, right? Uh, you don't have to, you don't have to pay unless you want to, you know, uh, jump, certain, jump the line, jump, jump certain lines. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, got it. Yeah. So, and that's the thing. So, um, we actually had gotten the, um, the DOS pass because, um, Boo, she's special needs. Well, they're both special needs, but Boo's got special needs. So we spent, Dave, eight hours, basically one day on hold for four hours, the next day on hold again in order to get the DOS interview because you have to talk to a cast member in advance. It's usually usually that way. They hung up on us maybe twice. um, And then we went and joined the queue again, and then we went through the interview process to get her – her DOS pass so that we had uh, special, you know, callback times to when we could ride certain rides because yeah. she does have a hard time um, waiting in line and, yeah, yeah. Um, because we're special needs. So we did get that, but still we had to wait in line quite a bit, you know? Yeah. Did you notice a lot of people paying up the extra fee to jump the line? Uh, yeah. Yeah. The extra fees. And I will tell you, uh, we went after fall break and a lot of families opted to to get a, a guided tour with a you know a Disney ambassador plaid plaid vest yeah yeah the so plaid that, vest yeah and they would pay the four hundred plus dollars an hour for a minimum of four hours just so they could get their families through the line. I think it's even more expensive than that now. I'd forgotten how much um, my wife, <laughs> the travel agent, she'd know, but but they would pay. Is it, is it 400 an hour now? I, I forgot what it was, Dave. I'm sorry. I forgot what it was, but it's a lot. It's a lot. I it's, thought it was a, I thought it was a $400 minimum. Is it $400 for like, minimum I, for four hours? Maybe I, I, that's what it is. Or, or, you know, two or three hours and then you pay a certain amount an hour after that. It may, right? it, that may be the case. Um, yeah. But I can tell you that they were all working. You know, I actually, um, the, the, the president of my company actually was going down to do the galactic star cruiser at the same time. So uh-huh. we tried booking him and uh, it was a last minute trip for him and his son. And they were no, no guides available during that time. Wow. They were all, they were wow. all working. 
So it, wow. was, it was that that tells you a it was busy, and uh, the next thing is people will pay that premium to go ahead and skip the line no matter what the cost is. It's amazing, isn't it? Absolutely amazing, isn't it? But yeah. hey, we still had a great time. We had a great time on the road trip as a family. It was the first time I ever. Uh, for an extended period of time, drove a hybrid vehicle. I, I had a hybrid minivan, and that saved me some dough. I tell you what, <laughs> I can I can imagine, you know, but it was especially cool. especially with the way the gas prices were. Although I, I I have to say, Al John, I don't feel too bad for you where you are because you're paying three something a gallon for gas. I just filled up this morning, and it was uh, it, it was five sixty a gallon. Yeah. Out here. Uh-huh. You know? So yeah. yeah, we we had a slight reduction in our gas prices um recently, but I, I know that it'll all go up. But yes, I, I we could be having it worse like you, Dave. I mean, side. boy, I'll tell you. Anytime <laughs> uh, any of my friends uh back east, you know, outside of California, I should say, any of my friends outside of California. Don't complain to me about gas prices. Yeah, I, I don't want to hear it. Yeah, well, well, I have to say the hybrid car was uh, quite quite the ride. I have to say, you know, and uh, I can see how people say it that they can pay for itself because I, I totally see that. So, Dave, I guess yeah. the next vehicle you might get might be a hybrid. Well, I'll tell you one thing. I, you know, we're we're starting to look at it. I I think you know everybody's going to be going hybrid or electric at some point. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah. yeah. Well, you asked me about my vacation. I'd be remiss if I asked you about your events uh, over the past couple of weeks. It was good. You know, I, ha- I had a very good time. We did the Disney Anna fan show uh, event. Uh, mm-hmm. It was always nice uh, seeing familiar faces and making some new friends. Right uh, so we we had a good time there. And uh, yeah, it's just been uh, it's been busy. You know, it's been a, a very busy uh, time of year. You know, the uh, CTN Expo is coming up in a couple of weeks out here in Burbank. And, um, you know, it's uh, we're 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 uh, swinging into the holidays. Right. Like all I can say. Yeah. This is the last uh, part of of convention season, if you will, before it shuts down for the holidays and, and after the new year. So, you know, get get that out of your system while you can before the holidays. Sure. Exactly. Exactly. Well, you know, we have a great guest today. I want to tease the topic. Yes. Uh, we have Angie Glocka. Yeah. Uh, she was the only female stop motion animator on the Nightmare Before Christmas. Awesome. You know, there was a core group of animators. She was the only uh, female animator. So we're looking forward to talking to her and catching up on her career and uh, the work she did on the Nightmare Before Christmas. And I love the photos behind the scenes that you've got. You know, you Dave, not only do you have that book that you've been teasing, uh, you know, for a bit now for a Nightmare Before for, Christmas. For years. For year, well, for years now. Yeah, that's true. But but it is finally coming out, what, next year? But yeah, uh, that's they tell me that's that's the story and he stick it to it. But, uh, you know, it's great to see those photos you even have some articles there on your website, which we always link uh, in the show notes. So you'll be able to check that out as well. But, yeah. And, and, you know, this is a this is a perfect uh, uh, person to have on the show uh, because it's Halloween. That's right. <laughs> Happy Halloween. It drops. Yeah. Halloween. Oh, my Happy goodness. Halloween is right. Well, I hope everyone enjoyed the last two episodes because Owen Cloudy is just a delight uh, to have on. And we didn't get a chance to really wrap up and talk too much about the Owen Cloudy shows since uh, they dropped during uh, our, our, by the, you know, while I was out, but uh, 
what a great talent he is and a talented filmmaker in his own right. Absolutely. You know, super nice guy. And I have to tell you, as we come into the end of the year, uh, you know, it's award season and everything. Keep your eyes out for uh, Of Wood, Owen Clate's, uh short uh, stop motion film. It's mm-hmm. absolutely fantastic. And you get an opportunity to see it. Uh, please do. Uh, and uh, it, it's just it blew me away. I had to go back and watch it a couple more times. Uh, because I just was, you know, completely amazed at what he accomplished in that film and how he did it. Yeah. It's a wonder to me when, when that stuff shows up. I mean, what a, what a great story. I love it. So anyway, uh, go back in the show archives and check out uh, the recent shows. Owen Clotty one and two, two part interview, as well as our interview with Kevin Kidney, because, uh, this October rocked with a bunch of awesome interviews as we, as we do. As always. Yeah, as always. And so now before we get into the news section, uh, let's catch up on what we've been streaming this week. Dave, uh, you and I both are in the Halloween spirit. Well, you know, the the last few weeks, I, I we haven't really had a chance to talk about all the stuff we've been watching, but I actually saw Halloween Ends uh, in the theaters. Yep. Uh, it was okay. I didn't think it was the strongest in the franchise. Uh, uh-huh. It was a bit disappointing. Uh, but you know what? Jamie Lee Curtis is always fantastic, and so I really enjoyed it. Um, Here's a saving grace. I, Here's a saving grace for me, Dave, with that movie. The saving grace is anytime Jamie Lee is on the screen. There you go. Absolutely. And if Jamie Lee is listening to our podcast, you're always welcome to come on as a guest. The original scream queen. Let's do it. <laughs> Please. You're my and idol. Then, uh, <laughs> I, I also watched uh, Amsterdam. Okay. Uh, uh, in the, in the theaters and it was, it was a complete miss. Oh, you know, it was actually a great cast, uh, you know, Christian Bale and, uh, you know, it, it was just a, a really good cast of people, but it was an unfocused movie. It was kind of all over the place <sighs> and, uh, it didn't do well. Uh, it got, uh, you know, hit by the critics and, uh, and even exit polls weren't that favorable on the movie. No so, bueno. uh, if you do want to see it, I'd wait for it to pop up on a streamer. Um, and then I went to see a special screening. This was a Turner Classic Movies presentation of In the Heat of the Night. Classic. With Sidney Poitier. Yes. Uh, and Rod Steiger. Uh, just a fantastic movie. I'd never seen it on a big screen. And I'm just really loving the Turner Classic Movie uh, programming they do throughout the year. If you get a chance to see some of these films at your local uh, multiplex, you should go do it. it. It's fantastic. Love it. It was so good to see that. And then uh, on streaming, uh, I, I'm staying up to date on Reboot on Hulu, which is really hilarious. Very well done. Um, I finished uh, season seven of Shetland. Um, I also finished the first season of Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power. Finished House of Dragons on HBO Max. Uh, we also watched the new season of, of a show called Happy Valley, which is a British show. Uh, we saw that on BritBox uh, Prime. Of course, I finished Andor, uh, and I'm disappointed that I have to wait as long as I'm going to have to wait for season two. <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, I, I thought Andor was a very good show on Disney+. Plus. Yeah, yeah, me too. I, I really enjoyed it. 
and then we watched the show, uh, all four seasons of a show called Catastrophe. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. Which is really, really good. It's hilarious. Great writing. Oh, you know, really okay. great writing. It's very funny. Uh, the lead in it, uh, Hogan, uh, it's, I think it's, uh, Sharon, Sharon Hogan, okay. uh, is, uh, is, you know, she's one of the creators and writers of the show. Yeah, Sharon, Ho Sharon Hogan. Yeah. Sharon Hogan. She's absolutely a fantastic, uh, talent. Uh, she's very funny. She was also in bad sisters and yes. was one of the creators and writers of bad sisters, yeah. uh, which was one of those limited series, you know, uh, it was, it was, I think it was eight episodes. Mm -hmm. um, just really fantastic. If you have a chance, check out catastrophe. I like it. All right, Dave. So, so that's catching up on a couple of weeks worth of viewing well, there content, you go. content viewing. There you go. Well, I'm like you, you know, I, I did catch up on a few things. First of all, we finished watcher. I think I mentioned that, um, a couple weeks ago, but finished watcher on Netflix, a uh, great twist based on a true story of just crazy house shenanigans um, and uh, different motives. So yes, it's, it's very, very good. I enjoyed it. Halloween ends, as you said, it uh, kind of was anticlimactic uh, in my opinion, but you know, the 30 minutes that uh, uh, you know, that is in there of, um, of uh, I, I'm just I'm having a brain fart now. Of Jamie Lee Curtis is awesome, yeah. and and or uh, you know there there was um I don't know if it was just me maybe maybe there's some pacing uh, issues with Andor I don't know, but um it's still it's still very good it's still very good but it, yeah. there were there were times where I felt like I had to push my way through some episodes. Yeah, you know I I I, I will say that to me the production value on that show is, is off the charts oh, the wow. way it is with Mandalorian yeah. and uh, Boba Fett. I mean, you know, these are really well done shows. 100%. I agree. Yeah. And then star Wars animated with Dave Filoni writing and directing, I believe most of these episodes, tales of the Jedi was released this week and I plowed through it. It was like 20 minutes, six episodes, I believe. And it was great. Some of the best mm. Star Wars is canon. So this is kind of the backstory of Count Dooku and the backstory of Ahsoka and how she got into the Jedi Order and what happened to Yaddle, uh, Jedi Master Yaddle, who was kind of like the, the female version of Yoda. What happened to her? She was in one movie and she only was there for a few minutes and then you get to learn a little bit more. So I, I like how they're expanding the universe a little bit in that. And, and I it, would you say Tales of Jedi is really for the hardcore Star Wars fans? Um, Yeah, probably. Probably, probably so. <laughs> okay. You're right. Um, Pinocchio. So finally, I got around to seeing it, Dave. Oh my gosh, what did you think? I think if I had not known or seen the original uh, Pinocchio from from Disney, I would say that this is an okay movie. But because I know it, and the only way you're gonna you you have to compare the two, it's a shell of that uh, a shell of a movie because. It in my opinion, Dave, and I know you, you went off on, uh, on this movie and you're not wrong is the movie wants to have heart and wants to be a cautionary tale. Um, that's what I love about the original Pinocchio is that it, it stayed to its roots on being a morality play of, of choosing good 
being tempted and trying to choose good and trying to be a good boy, trying to, trying to have a conscience. And this movie was basically an adventure story. It's like, Oh, I got into trouble and Oh, I'm here at pleasure Island and this stuff happens, but there is, I don't really see a, an arc for Pinocchio. I don't, it's lame. It's just super lame. Yeah, you know something. I I think I said this a few weeks ago when I watched it. Um, I I just feel as though um, if if they're gonna remake the animated classics, stick to the storyline that Walt laid down. Yeah. Um, you know the original nineteen forty nineteen thirty nine you know nineteen forty Pinocchio. Um, to me, it is a very simple, straight story. You know, and I think that this live action version just got convoluted and in the process lost its heart. Yep. yep. You know, I'm with so, you. So there you have it. And again, I think I said this the last time. If you if you look at John Favreau's version of The Lion King, he stuck to the script. Yep. He basically stuck to the script and it did very well. Why mess with greatness? Yeah, why mess with it? Why right. change the story? Why why upend things? Uh, you know, and, and 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 you know, this is part of the problem I think at Disney is that there's too many cooks in the kitchen that are meddling with stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's, you know, that's what I would say about it. So the animation was amazing. Yeah, I really really like all the animation in it. I thought it was really well the the lighting and the colors were great i liked mm-hmm. tom hanks did a did a great job i wouldn't say he did an outstanding job i feel like he maybe some sense he phoned it you in you know what <laughs> i i mean you can't fault tom hanks he's he's being directed you're you know right what I mean? you're right and you're right and, and you know i think he did as good a job as you can expect um you know could it have been better of course it could have been you uh, know yeah and i think but you know him and robert zemeckis are 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 kind of a product of what the studio, as you said, the studio meddling. Yeah. Perhaps. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, so that's Pinocchio. It's a letdown, just like Halloween ends, just a little bit of a letdown. But what didn't let me down are some of my favorite Halloween movie rewatches. Just so you know, Invasion of Body Snatchers from 78 <laughs> still does it for me. <laughs> Crazy. Nightmare on Elm Street 3, amazing. The Dream Warriors. Uh, the Blob remake in 1988 that I saw in a theater growing up is I think it holds up, Dave. I think it holds up. I think it's good. By the way, I've seen all of these movies, the blob, the omen, uh, invasion of the body snatchers and nightmare, uh, uh, nightmare on Elm street three. I've seen them all when they were released. Yeah. I haven't seen them since. (laughs) That's why I'm here, Dave. (laughs) And, uh, probably one of the, the best horror movies of all time, the omen. It's so good. It's I'm so still I'm still good. haunted by it. It's it's so good. Well, Gregory Peck, I mean, come on, man. You know, it's it's so good. So anyway, uh that is what we've been watching this week. Let us know by via email what you've been watching and we will talk about it in an upcoming episode. Skull Rock Podcast, ripped from the headlines. It's Skull Rock Podcast headline news. Fresh from the heels of the 50th anniversary of the Walt Disney World Resort, Disney marks 100 years with new music and a theme store in the metaverse. Dave, 100 years of Disney next year. Can you believe it? I know. It's unbelievable. And uh, I have to tell you, uh, 
Uh, I'm wondering if anybody is in the metaverse. <laughs> I have not been there. Uh, yeah, I have not been uh, there. Yet. And I have to tell you, you know, uh, uh, Meta, which is the parent company of Facebook, has uh, actually, uh, you know, they reported earnings last week, and uh, the stock tanked. Because uh, they're, you know, the expectation of the metaverse. And if you remember, you know, a year ago, Al John, everybody under the sun, every CEO was, oh, well, we're getting into the metaverse. We're allocating funds to the metaverse. Yeah, everybody, everybody was talking about the metaverse, but nobody knew what the hell the metaverse was. Yeah, you know, and uh, and so I just sit there and go, you know, who's going to the metaverse? If any of our listeners have been to the metaverse, please. Drop us a note and let us know what the metaverse is and where it is. <laughs> can, can someone please show me a map. Is there a map to the metaverse? Can I have that? I know, please? really. <laughs> How about a URL, an old school URL? How about that? Yeah, and, and by the way, uh, you know, uh, Meta came out with uh, new, uh, you know, goggles, you know, the, these, uh, you know, uh, Meta goggles, and they're $1,500. I mean, honestly, yeah, who's going to buy these $1,500 headsets? Tell me about it, Dave. Every time I log into Facebook, there's something telling me I need to get some facebook goggles <laughs> <laughs> yeah, i mean honestly well i'm happy that disney marks 100 years with a new music theme store in the metaverse and you know honestly i hope i hope people go visit it because it's not going to be crowded <laughs> <laughs> not like not like walt disney world which leads me to this story so uh disney wants to track you across disney plus and physical parks yeah i kind of know that because they have everything all the apps on my phone are disney uh, yeah go into the park parks and they have you they know what they're doing they're just data mining you to the nth degree but that is the next step of the evolution of disney uh courtesy of ray bradbury right dave yeah but you know something this is nothing new i mean uh netflix uh since it started its streaming service has been data mining you yes. know and, and and they're making a lot of decisions based on the data that they're mining out of their viewers uh, so it's only natural that Disney does this and uh, they should do it. Uh, it's an awful lot of information. They can understand more fully uh, what uh, the fans are doing, what people are watching on Disney plus and help satisfy, uh, you know, programming uh, based on some of that. That's right. Disney CEO, Bob paycheck. I mean, JPEG told uh, wall street <laughs> journal, <laughs> <laughs> During the Tech Live event that the company is working on experiences that involve user tracking, Disney will create tailored experiences based on you how you interact with the physical and digital products from the company. Quote, if you're on Disney Plus, we should be aware of what happened, what you experienced, what you liked, and the last time you visited a park, and vice versa. JPEG said, quote, when you're in a park, we should know when you're, what your viewing habits are on Disney Plus. JPEG did mention two crucial details about Disney tracking customers, including one that might set it apart from other types of tracking. First, Disney might be in a position to track people in parks so that uh, parks and on Disney Plus only if customers give Disney the ability to do so. You have to opt in for that. So it'll personally tailor that. And then uh, what's more interesting is that JPEG indicated Disney would offer customized experience across platforms on an individual level. We talked about that. Um, and then, of course, that'll ho hopefully get their uh, Disney store up and running in your brain, in your mind, uh, and in your hearts, Dave, and your wallets. Did I say that? 
Yeah, you know something though. I, I honestly, I think this is this is nothing really new. They're they're just jumping on the bandwagon. I mean, you know, when you've gone online and you know uh, shopped for a pair of shoes or or a, a new shirt, uh, don't you start seeing advertising for that material uh, on other platforms when you're on them? I mean, I see it all the time. If I go, if I go look something up online, like, you know, a particular pair of pants, um, you know, for the next week, I'm seeing ads for that company and their pants on social media platforms that I'm on, mm-hmm. you know, so they're tailoring stuff to uh, the interests of the user. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Hey, uh, Dave, what do you think about James Gunn becoming the vice president of DC Entertainment? You know, listen, this was an interesting story because there's been so much talk about trying to set it up so that you've got somebody uh, like a Kevin Feige uh, in charge of the DC universe. And, uh, you know, look, it's James Gunn and this other guy. So they basically <laughs> took they, they they took a creative person and they paired them with a business person. Uh-huh. And those two guys are going to run D- the DC studios now. Yeah. Crazy, right? Absolutely you know, hey, crazy. listen, uh, this is what they should be doing. Uh they should have uh somebody uh in creative control of the Disney uni- uh, of the DC universe and uh and really uh, trying to figure out what the game plan is for years into the future mm-hmm. uh, so that they don't keep having these misfires that don't relate to anything. Yeah. It's about know? time they got their stuff straight. You would have thought that they would have done that a few years back, but it just, I think that's once again, it's a, it's a, anytime there is a merger that takes place, AT&T Warner brothers, and now AT&T, uh, taking D, uh, DC and and shoving it off, and then it's being merged with Discovery. Everything is being shuffled. There's leadership changes, so it's just another one of those things that happens. Uh, yeah, and, and hopefully there'll be some stability for for a while uh, since uh, Warner and Discovery have merged, and you've got uh, a strong CEO at the top. Uh, so let's, let, let's see what happens. There's a lot of great DC properties, you know, and, um, uh, you know, Cavill, uh, is back as Superman. Yep. Yep. By the way, uh, uh, black, black Adam is on my list. It did. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually, uh, the next, the, the next show next week, I will have seen it. Uh, and we'll, we'll talk about it. Well, James Gunn, the co-chairman and co-CEO of DC studios, along with business person, Peter Safran, you know, I know that, that, that turned a lot of heads earlier in the week. So, um, the first person he called was Kevin Feige and they're supposedly good friends and he wanted to squash the beef, uh, too. I think there were some tweets and people reading a lot into a rivalry saying, oh, you know, Disney messed up. James Gunn when they fired him the first time because of 10 year old tweets and this, that, and the other, and then brought him back. And this is his revenge for that. No, I don't think so. I think this is, you know, Disney did what they had to do at the time, what they felt like they had to do. And then when they brought him back, everything was cool. But I knew that we all knew there were cracks in the armor when he started working on DC projects. 
You know, hey, listen, we could do a whole show about some of this stuff. Like, how far back in somebody's life do you go, and and do you do you you know do you beat them up now over something they did twenty or thirty years ago? Exactly. I mean, honestly, you yeah. know, I mean, you know, do you you know, I, I I egged a couple of houses on Halloween when I was in high school. Do uh, are uh, you gonna you are you gonna cancel we're me? Canceling over you, it, Dave, you know? We're canceling you right now. We're canceling you. <laughs> we're gonna cancel everybody. There's gonna be no one in entertainment because you know, as they say, he who cast the first stone, you know. Uh, yeah, it's just one of those things. It, everyone, everyone has done some just crazy things. But having said yeah. that, uh, you know, Guardians Three is still on the horizon. We have the holiday uh, uh, Guardian special, which, by the way, broke the internet as well. You know, reprising uh, the role. I gotta tell you, Al John, <laughs> I love this trailer, I and it features too. Kevin Bacon. I love it. Oh, you and it's it. Kevin Bacon <laughs> as himself. It's I fantastic. I know. Now Kevin Bacon is a. It's kind of one of those things. He's part of the Marvel universe as himself which is kind of cool because we know kevin bacon was also in the fox franchise as well as the leader of the hellfire club so it's kind of cool to see him kind of get brought back although by you know by his own name you know not by a, a superhero or super villain that he's playing but james gunn had been tweeting about it you know our holiday gift to you 11 25 22 only on disney plus it is a special edition guardians holiday special and i like it i like and, it and so i'd much. encourage all of our listeners to check out that uh trailer because it really is hilarious it looks like a it looks like a movie that has heart and i love that there you um, go so See, speak, I, yeah. I can hear your kids I, they want to <laughs> go back to disney world they do want to go back to disney world right now <laughs> yeah yeah put on your headphones and listen to to boo and jack jack scream um star wars movies in the works from damon lindelof uh, and Miss Marvel director Charmaine Obed Chinoy. And they are talented writer directors in their own right. And it's going to be interesting to see the kind of stuff that they have planned. Um, it seems to me like Star Wars is, is trying to still find itself. Yeah, you know something? Listen, I, I, I think that uh, they're, 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 marching forward and they're going to come up with something great, you know, and I think it'll be worth the wait. Yeah, absolutely. So this is going to be really cool. Who knows? This is a untitled feature set for December, 2025 and 2027. So I'm curious to see what they're going to bring to the table. Awesome. Tim Burton, of course, it's Halloween time, you know, a nightmare before Christmas or the nightmare before Christmas uh, uh, is definitely a perennial favorite, but According to IndieWire, Tim Burton says he's done making Disney movies. Call the company a horrible pig circus. <laughs> um, that's a way to burn a bridge, Tim. But you love those you know, checks, don't you? Listen, you know, uh, Tim admittedly says he's been uh, hired and fired a number of times at Disney uh, throughout his career. Uh, and, uh, you know, when I saw this, Al John, I just thought, well, it's par for the co- uh, for the course, uh, because, uh, you know, there there's a lot of issues with uh, content creators and Disney, you know, and, uh, you know, I think, you know, they I think Disney will probably have to reexamine how they're dealing with content creators going forward. Exactly. Um, I, I think they, they are artists, you know, at my company, we have a way and a special way of handling um, artists and creators because they're, I think they're just a different breed and you have to have, it all boils down to relationships. 
Mm-hmm. You know, you may not have them on the payroll, um, but they are still making money and your company's still making money off their work. And I think there's just a really go- good way of working with these kind of creators uh, where everybody can be happy. Yeah. Uh, I, I, and you know, something it's, uh, you know, it, it, this is one of those stories where I'm not surprised. I mean, look, you know, you had, we talked about James Gunn, you know, James Gunn was fired from Disney. Uh, you had other directors leave over creative differences. You've had, uh, you know, authors not getting paid their royalties. Uh, you know, there, there's just, you know, a pattern of, uh, uh, not treating, uh, talent, the, the, really the way you should. Right. Right. You need to get the right people for that job. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Speaking of uh, <laughs> speaking of the right people, Seth Rogen or Evan Goldberg are the right people for this crazy ass uh, sausage party TV series. <laughs> um, F- Foodtopia. I, I don't even know what to say about. I mean, I saw Sausage Party and I just thought to myself, what am I watching? I I, I was laughing so hard while I watched that. Uh, and, and by the way, our listening <laughs> audience, Sausage Party is a very crude animated movie it'll make you laugh some people might get disgusted by it but it is i i thought it was very very funny but trust me it is not for children it 100 not for children but uh the streamer uh prime video ordered a series called sausage party foodtopia like dave said based on the 2016 animated comedy original cast members will be returning seth rogan seth rogan Kristen wig michael sarah david kremoltz ed norton will return in addition will forte sam richardson natasha rothwell and yasir lester have been added to the cast wow that's comedic gold right there uh, and, and with Rogan and Evan Goldberg at the helm, you know, it's going to be crazy, uh, just like that movie was. So, um, you know, I don't know. It's kind of like Toy Story. For, and this is weird. It's just like the antithesis of Toy Story. Toy Story had a lot of different stories you could tell with these toys and the characters you follow. Sure. With, with the food, um, sure, I guess. Why not? You know, how much raunchier can it get? Right. It's on Amazon. Well, I'm, sure, I'm sure it'll get much raunchier. It's going to get much raunchier. <laughs> I mean, look at, look at the boys case in point. It's going to get yes. raunchy. Right. All right. So now we're here uh, with the passings of some recent legends. Uh, we'll start off first with Jerry Lee Lewis, the piano bashing pioneer of rock and roll dies at 87. There's been a lot of uh, interesting reports of his death before it was actually confirmed. And, uh, and I guess Friday we found out that he was officially, it was confirmed by official sources that he had passed away. So Dave, uh, do you have any stories or, or thoughts you'd like to share about the killer? Jay Lee Lewis? You know, I got to tell you something. I read his obituary and I was just like, holy smokes. You know, this guy was married seven times. He had... <laughs> I think he had six children and some of the children died prematurely. Yeah. You know, I mean, his, his son died when he was 19 in a car crash. Um, you know, he had a, a, another child drowned. Um, you know, he had wives pass away. I, I mean, you know, he had this sort of checkered life. And by the way, the thing that struck me the most was that, he was by the time he was 22, he had been married three times. Isn't it crazy? And his first marriage was when he was 14. 
unbelievable. And I'm just like, I, that was mind blowing. I, I got to tell you, you, if you want, read it, read his obituary because it is just a, uh, an incredible story, you know? Well, it is. Um, you talk about, you know, crazy rock and roll stories. This one tops, the, you know, tops the, uh, the list. Yeah. The crazy rock and there. roll stories. And, and rightfully so being that he is the pioneer of rock and roll. Uh, he had what, uh, you know, 10 gold records during his career. Um, all kinds of known for his biggest hit, great balls of fire, but also a whole lot of shaking going on. Bye bye. Uh, bye baby. Bye bye. Breathless high school confidential tons of, of songs there. Did, did you ever see him, uh, play live? I don't think so. I don't think I ever saw him play live. I had opportunities to, to see him play live and, um, you know, I've always thought he was very controversial, um, but yeah. I always appreciated, you know, his musicianship and his showmanship uh, more than anything. Well, so, I think I think his career was damaged early on when he was 22 and he married his 13 year old cousin. That uh, that's a hard one. <laughs> I know. I mean, it yeah. was just crazy. Yeah, it was absolutely a, crazy stuff. That is you know? absolutely and, crazy and, stuff. And, and did you ever go to his? Uh, he had he had a bar restaurant. Yes, I did in, go to the bar it, in Memphis. Right. What's the name of it? Oh shoot, I forgot what the name of it was in in Memphis, but. Uh, but yeah, yeah uh, is that place still open or I, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I've kind of, yeah. I've really ever since uh, we, you know, my, my business kind of closed shop in our Memphis office. I haven't been back in many years, but uh, okay. it's a Jerry Lee Lewis cafe and honky tonk on Beale street. Uh, of course, last time I was there, uh, it was there, but uh, okay. I don't know if it's there anymore. So there well, you go. Anyway. Yeah. I- interesting person. I would tell our listeners Read the obituary it's, because it is sort of an unbelievable story. <laughs> and watch Great Balls of Fire with Dennis Quaid, right? Yeah. yeah. It's a great movie. Uh, Jules Bass, producer behind the Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and Frosty the Snowman TV specials, dies at 87. Um, Dave, I, I'm going to say this. I'm not, I don't want to sound too insensitive, but uh, I'm surprised that he, he, A, at his age being 87, I always thought he was older. Uh, honestly, I have to tell you, I thought he was already dead. Yeah. Okay. And, you said and, it. <laughs> and, and I was actually surprised when I saw this because I actually thought, you know, uh, it was Rankin and Bass that produced those uh, uh, holiday specials in the 60s. Yeah. And I thought both those guys were gone already. I know Rankin's gone, but uh, Bass, I, I thought, had already passed away. But, you know, I have to tell you something. They leave behind, he leaves behind his name on some really classic holiday shows and you know, who doesn't watch frosty, the snowman or Rudolph, the red nosed reindeer going into the holiday season. I we mean, have. I've been watching it since I was a kid. Same. It's a yearly every, occurrence every year, right? Every year we've got the DVD box sets of all of his specials, uh, animated and stop motion. And the Rankin bass is just a classic. I mean, Burl Alive, Silver and Gold, that whole thing there. I mean, it's just so good. Santa Who's Claus it? Cl- Klondike down. Pete? Yeah. Or, uh, you know. Yeah, exactly. All that all that stuff is just so good. You talk about, and the stop motion animation is just, that to me just awakened like so much, yeah. uh, so much I, in I mean, me as a child. beautifully done. Yeah, beautifully done. It's like Christmas ornaments come to life. I absolutely yeah. love it. And yeah. so 
you know, you leave behind such great work, but, you know, like Dave, I, I had thought that he had passed away, but, uh, you know, rest in peace because this guy, uh, Jules Bass, you know, produced some amazing stuff. And, 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 you know, I have to tell you, when you think of the holidays and watching uh, holiday specials, what comes to mind? Charlie Brown Christmas, uh-huh. Frosty the Snowman, uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, Nightmare Before Christmas. Christmas you know, those are yeah. those are all your standard uh, holiday shows, yep. you know? I mean, I cannot get through a holiday season without seeing the Charlie Brown Christmas special, the same. original one, you know? Yeah, same here, you know, and all the Rankin Bass. And, you know, absolutely. And, and my favorite miracle on uh, 34th Street. I love there it. There you go. So... Rest in peace, Jules Bass. Yeah, great body of work left behind. Absolutely. Dave, it's time now for our celebrated Women in Animation, our interview for this week. Angie Glocka, sit back and enjoy. Let's do it. Skull Rock Podcast, Women in Animation. Skull Rock Podcast, interview time. Well, Al John, once again, we have another fantastic guest and it is October. So to me, that is nightmare before Christmas time of the year. And we've got Angie Glocka, who is the only female animator on the nightmare before Christmas. Angie, welcome to the Skull Rock podcast. All right. Thanks. Glad to be here. So excited. Yeah. And, and you know, uh, I, before we get into you working on Nightmare Before Christmas, mm-hmm. I really want to know, like, how did you get interested in art and animation and and sort of, you know, did it go back to your childhood? Was there a particular film? Tell us how it got started, how you got involved and where you went to school. Uh Yeah, I've been my I won my first art contest at age six. Wow. I've been drawing my whole life. Yeah, I, I drew a picture of my dad, my pop's tops, and they gave him a skimbles, the department store, gave him a shirt and a tie. And uh, I was the only kid in my kindergarten that uh, knew how to draw perspective. Uh, like I could draw the ponytail coming from behind my head and stuff. Wow. Anyway, I drew a portrait of my father and they gave me a prize and um, so all through grade school, I, that was my, it really was the holy cards. I went to Catholic grade school. We went to church every day. And all I could do in mass was look at these beautiful holy cards, which were like Renaissance paintings, really. And they were gorgeous. And uh, that's, I just wanted to make drawings like that, paintings. So uh, through my whole grade school, uh, there was a, heavy-duty focus on art. The nuns weren't interested in anything but singing hymns, teaching art, strangely enough, and then they would teach math, but we kind of didn't learn about anything else. So we sang a lot, and we did a lot of artwork. Wow, weren't you lucky? I know. I was totally like, I think it's because that's what the nuns were allowed to do. Um, so I really, uh, and you know, both my parents were artists, so that uh, they encouraged me. But um, so I always knew that I needed to have a career in art. I just knew I had more than that. I really wanted to work with a crew. My dream was always to work with a crew. And uh, I remember I saw a 
read about Andy Warhol's factory and I thought, oh my God, that's what I want. That's what I want to do in my life. But I saw Fantasia, the first one, when I was in high school and I said, okay, I have to be an animator. That's what I want to do. I have to be an animator. So I tried uh, making my own animation stand and I didn't, I knew nothing about how to do it. I was just trying to figure it out. And uh, there was one person in Milwaukee, you, Owen probably talked about him, Pete Loft, who was this incredibly brilliant illustrator. No, and no, he, uh, Owen didn't mention him. So you tell us all about that. Oh, he, he's uh, just the most amazing illustrator. There was a, uh, it was the time of our Crumb comics. Yeah. And, uh-huh. uh, keep he, on trucking. So yeah, keep well, on there trucking was, stuff. Yeah. There was a, a tangential kind of production comic book company in Milwaukee called Kitchen Sink Studios. And Dennis Kitchen, I think he still runs a magazine in Madison, but he did uh, uh, artwork for, our, um, was it R. Crumb? I forgot what the publication were. And he, he and Pete would do these amazing illustrations. Anyhow, um, and they were like really uh, hippie oriented. Uh, <laughs> but uh, Pete decided he wanted to start his own animation company. And he would just, he built his own Oxberry. And he was this amazing uh, animator, taught all self-taught. And uh, he hired me and uh, a couple other people to paint cells in his little, first in his bedroom. Wow. And uh, his father was like a violinist who started the fine arts quartet. And so he started his little studio in his bedroom and then he eventually got a studio. And uh, so I painted cells for probably four or five years on and off, paid us five bucks an hour, which was a lot. And um, that's where I met Owen. Owen uh, and I met each other. And in the, in the course of that time, there was no really way to make a living as an artist. If you want to be an artist in Milwaukee, you either worked doing like layout and ads or you kept it as a hobby. That was kind of like the, there was, there was no real venue for making a lot of money. Um, so I didn't really, and that I knew that wasn't going to satisfy me. So I took every, I was at in college at the university of Wisconsin, Milwaukee, and I took, they had a, big experimental film program. And they had a handful of uh, classes that were animation related. So like I learned to do some down shooting. Uh, I, it was all experimental, but I learned how to do some animation. And um, Pete Loft's company eventually kind of folded. He went on to do other things. But um, I just knew that I wanted I wanted more. And the thing is I saw star Wars at the time and I could feel that there was this thing out there in California. It was just like, uh, when the people had to go to devil's tower and close encounter. I mean, I, <laughs> I literally was like, I was getting called. I couldn't stand the feeling. I you had speak to in go. Al John's language, by the way, <laughs> Al John's a big star Wars fan and I'm sure he oh. likes close encounters. Oh, this is true. 100%. Well, uh, 100%. I mean, I think that film really launched a lot of creative minds in that era, whether it's music or art, because of all the stuff that went into the film production. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was, it blew me away. I still like get teary eyed when I see it. 
Um, but uh, Owen was, I met Owen at Painting Cells at Pete Loft Studio, and I had taken probably every film and art course that I could that was loosely related to animation at the university. And uh, I just said, Owen and I started dating, and I said, do you want to go to California? And I couldn't believe it. He said, okay. <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't believe it. <laughs> I knew I wanted to do it, but I was literally, it was like pretty nervous about just going by myself. I did have some friends here, but um, so we did it. And, 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 and where'd you go first? You went to San Francisco or Los Angeles? Yeah, we went to San Francisco. And why San Francisco? Because my friends were there. Okay. I probably had four or five friends from Milwaukee who had, migrated out there and some of them actually ended up in Seattle but uh, there's those were where my friends were but I I wanted to work uh at Lucasfilm I wanted to work for ILM I started I actually had a, a studio I rented some studio space and I was starting to paint clouds the city in the clouds was like I wanted to do that that's what I wanted to paint I wanted to paint those backgrounds so I rented a space in a studio and I started experimenting with painting clouds and uh but I didn't have enough money to go to Cal Arts you know I knew that Cal Arts was a place where a lot of people really a lot, a lot of people in animation have gone through there right uh, yeah. especially a lot of the luminaries in today's animation world right when I was at Pixar I think I was one of the few people who didn't graduate from Cal Arts right right um so uh but anyhow, I just had to go. We, I just had to be there. And so Owen and I went, and it was, to me, it was like we were so lucky because it was the beginning the, or the middle of this animation renaissance. I mean, like, uh, Pixar well, what, was what, getting what year? What, what year were you in, Sarah? What, what, what we, year did you pull we, into town? I think it was like 82. Oh, my gosh. You you yeah. were you were it was pre Renaissance of animation. It, yes, was, it was it was just starting to maybe bubble right. at that point. You know, I could feel it percolating. I mean, Owen and I found found a way to work with for free. We worked for free on so many things. You know, a lot of failed, but you know, everybody was kind of trying to find a way. Everybody was. I think it was this collective unconscious. And uh, a lot of artists, you know, like uh, um, Steve Jobs was starting Apple and he, he didn't, he, he started uh Pixar, didn't he? Did he not? I yeah. Think he yeah. He, 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 yeah. Well, he, he actually uh, uh, bought uh, uh, Pixar from uh, George Lucas. Right. Uh, yeah. And, it, and, and Pixar initially was a computer hardware. It was a computer graphics company. Uh, they right. were building computers, uh, but but Steve then started the animation unit uh, to show off really what they could do on those Pixar computers. And they okay. started doing like Listerine commercials and things yep. like that. Yeah. I don't know if you talked to Mike Belzer, but he did one of those. Yeah, for yeah. sure. My, Mike's uh, on my, my Mike's on my list of people to to have on the show. Yeah, he's just got a long long career illustrious career but um so uh we and the, the local animation chapter run by carl cohen one of the unsung heroes of of animation he uh 
he still is writing the Asifa newsletter, I believe, but he would have meetings in his house, his big old Victorian house, every month. So all the animators would gather and we'd all network. And we'd all get, we'd all, all these ideas were percolating. All these people who wanted to do something like that. Um, P- Peter Crossman and Deborah Short, they were friends of Henry. Henry had, was there and he had a lot of friends. Mm-hmm. Henry was just starting to do his animation. Uh, like he did Slow Bob. He probably talked to you about it. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, he was starting to work at Colossal. And um, so we were all, we could feel it. There were just these burgeoning, Tippett, Phil Tippett was starting his studio. Yeah. And, and uh, I think uh, PDI was also becoming yeah. developed before they were bought. By yeah. What was works. it? Pacific Data Imaging yeah. or something yeah. like that. Yeah. They, right. they were bought up by, uh, by DreamWorks. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And uh, so there were all these people in the Bay Area and they were, a lot of parties, just a lot of parties. We would go to a lot of them. And they were always free. And we would invade this place and that place. And um, just really, you could feel something was happening. And, but in the meantime, Owen worked at a film lab. And I worked at the Pacific Stock Exchange. Um, <laughs> <laughs> wow. What were you doing at the Pacific well, I was Stock in the, Exchange? It, I was in the graphics department. Oh, okay. <laughs> it was pretty fun, though. I would, you know, mm. the traders would come down to our little warren down there when they wanted to get away from the trading floor and it was pretty fun we got to go to some you know it's funny a lot of people don't realize that there is you know everybody thinks stock exchange is in new york city but there's multiple stock exchanges in this country right there's one in la i think yeah there is and Mm -hmm. uh there there's the uh, pacific stock exchange in san francisco there is mm-hmm. uh, the bond and commodity trading uh, mm-hmm. uh, exchange in uh, Chicago. Uh, oh, I but didn't anyway, know that. I, yeah, so I, I digress there, but I, I, I think, you know, some people are always surprised because they just think of the New York Stock Exchange, the stock exchange. But I, uh, I did yeah. not know. I just yeah. was looking for a job as a typesetter. I could type really fast. So. Yeah. Uh, but it was fun. And, um, but I, uh, Decided I needed to, I never graduated from UWM, so I decided I needed to, I want to go back to school. So I went to San Francisco State, which did have some an animation, more animation classes. And uh, again, I took whatever I could. That's where I did my first stop motion project for Marcy Page, who works for National Film Board. Um, I think she retired now, but... Uh, uh, I just uh, met with um, Carolyn Glass, Carolyn, who does the painting on glass, Caroline. Oh. Um, yeah, I can't remember her last name, but I know yeah. who, you're talk- who you're talking about. When we were at Asifa, we met with a bunch of people who uh, um, work with Marcy. Anyhow, um, so she was one of our teachers, and Marty McNamara was another teacher. Anyhow, that's where I learned more Um uh, about more hands-on animation. But then I saw an ad in the newspaper. Animators wanted $5 an hour. No, wait, they didn't say that. That was the rumor. But uh, animators wanted. And, like, I couldn't believe it, really. <laughs> so I went I went to check it out. Sure enough, it was uh, Art Cloakey wanted to restart Gumby. 
And, yeah, uh, and I, I know Owen did speak about this as well. Uh, yeah. If our, if our listeners have uh, uh, heard Owen's interview last week. Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, Art Cloak uh, plays a pivotal role up in the Bay Area, doesn't he? Oh, he totally did. I mean, he he was just in love with Gumby. Gumby was a real character to him. And um, he got involved with uh, Can Patek and Dave Blyman, two like incredibly creative people. Dave was a line producer. I think he's still he's a still executive producer in LA. And Ken Pontak was the art director. And I think mostly what he does is writing now. But uh, they pretty much shepherded the whole. They set up the whole production, and they hired me. I mean, I couldn't believe it. They hired me. I had two weekends of stop motion experience from and a project, and they hired me. That's awesome. And, Oh, I could, I mean, oh, they hired both of Owen and me. And, uh, and Art said, oh, well, I don't really care how fine it looks. I just want Gumby to move something to that effect. And everything we learned, everything we did there was on TV. I mean, basically they were training all the animators and whatever thing you did that day got on television, no matter how good or bad it was. And it was, (laughs) 33 half hour episodes, year and a half, $15 an hour, which was a lot. Well, Owen and, and, and I, go ahead. I, I was going to ask you, and, and was that a year and a half of working five days a week? Yep. Wow. Yes, it was. So it was a full, was, full-time gig for a year and a half. It was full-time um, uh, every day. And it was amazing. I mean, it was so amazing. It was still to this day, one of the most fun jobs I've ever had for that entire year and a half. It was just fun because we were constantly inventing. Like we, uh, Dave and Ken are both incredibly inventive people. So we took Gumby to places technically that Gumby had never been before. We built flying rigs and all sorts of effects and people experimented with all sorts of stuff. And we uh, really wanted to do it right now. We did not have video backup at the time. Um, so it was still all surface gauges. Yeah. Um, but we did some really, really good animation. But a lot uh, of people. All of Gumby was just surface gauges, right? Yes. Yes. He, it, by the time that series ended, uh, I think Dave Blyman actually invented for when he went on to create Bump in the Night. He he put together a, a video. The frame uh, grabber, the frame grabber, right? Yeah, the, he, yeah. You, not, you had like the two previous frames and the current frame. You, well, his was, uh, oh, well, that was actually, uh, his system was after Nightmare. Yeah, night, uh, the frame grabber on Nightmare was two, it was a box. It was two frames plus live. Right. And that's, and that was all we had for that whole movie. And so we still which, had to use a lot of surface gauges. Which is a far cry from today because like a, like a, uh, they're shooting digitally, so you can see the entire scene that you've shot up to. Uh, and if you want yeah. to go back 10 or 15 frames and, and re- redo what you just did on those 15 or 10 frames or whatever, you could do it, but, oh, but not back then. 100%. Yeah, it was uh, when we did Nightmare, we did some extremely complicated s- scenes in Nightmare. Um, uh, I like to say that... Uh, Doing 
uh, stop motion shot without a frame grabber is like doing a painting where you can't see what you've done, what the previous brush strokes are. Yeah. And you don't see the entire painting until the show. I mean, like, because we would do a shot, download it, take it to the lab, and we wouldn't even see it until it was screened in front of an audience dailies the next day. Right. And uh, that was really something. <laughs> it's always a nail biter, isn't it? Yeah. Always a nail yeah, biter. Yeah, yeah. But anyhow, so we learned at Gumby, I mean, we, artists gave us, I mean, a lot of freedom, enormous freedom. And uh, we really were able to learn our craft. Let, let me ask you that. Uh, uh, when you were starting on the Gumby series, mm-hmm. did you feel by the time you finished it that you had really advanced your skill set in doing stop motion? Oh, 10,000%. It was practice every day. And the other thing is, it's it's like your brain has to shift around, at least mine did, because you had to remember everything. Like it's different now with Dragon Frame. I don't know what the thought process is like if you've never had to go through not having video assistance. But uh, you really had to remember everything you did. You could write notes, but you kind of, they call it the zone. You had to get into this kind of like altered state almost. Yeah. Uh, Mike Belzer likes to talk about that a lot, but um, it changes your, I remember it was really, really, really hard. Like, and then it actually changed my dreams. Some, uh, and then one day it got easy. It was amazing. It was like, it was really, really mind boggling to remember everything, especially if you had multiple characters. It took about six months and then all of a sudden something shifted in my brain and it got a lot easier. And then my dreams changed too. It was very, I would, I started dreaming about stop motion. <laughs> <laughs> now, now were you, were you the type of animator that uh, uh, if you started doing, cause you're doing stop motion straight ahead, frame at a time. Right. Right. Uh, if you were working on a shot, would you start that shot and have to just see it through to the end? Or could you stop and go home and come back and pick up the next day? No, we could, uh, we could stop. Uh, you had to, uh, you had to put surface gauges on everything. Right. To see if anything shifted overnight. Um, and then we'll always remember to take your surface gauge away before you shot your frame. But uh, you could leave it overnight. And uh, ex- the only problem with California is earthquakes. There are a number of times when there was an earthquake and somebody said, and uh, you could see it. Well, you couldn't see it in the camera in those days. Right. But you could see it when you system. got the dailies back. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it ever ruined anyone's shot. Yeah. I remember on Nightmare once, Trey Thomas had this incredibly complicated. Um, motion control shot where it had a giant, gigantic track, motion control track, and there was an earthquake. And uh, he came back, and it was before, you know, we only had two frames plus live, and uh, nobody knew what to do, so he just gave the whole system a good kick, and it went perfectly, perfectly wow. into place. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's the kind of guy he was. <laughs> now, uh, so when when you finished up on Gumby, 
Mm-hmm. What happened then? We, you were out of work. How how long were you out of work for? Uh, and what was your next gig? Um, we all fought to get the tiny scraps of animation that were ever available. Uh, there was uh, a lot of us who were lucky enough to get Colossal Pictures was doing commercials. Yeah. And so we were all lucky enough to get a little uh, bit of work on that. Um, but that's, that's intermittent, right? Right. Like you, you'd work for, you know, five or six weeks on one of those commercials. Right. And because right. usually those commercials only had like an eight week production schedule start to finish. So the animation uh, is probably what, four or five weeks. Right. Yeah. Yeah. If that, um, we, what did we do for money? Um, I think that was in those time. Owen and I actually got some money up front to create and animate some clay characters to do clay cycles for a, a, a video game for a place called Visual Concepts up in Novato. I think they're still there. And uh, we animated some. I made the, the puppets, and so did Norm DiCarlo made some. And um, we animated the cycles and put in digitized them, put it on disc and handed them to the the game company who put them into their platform. Got it. And uh, I, we worked <laughs> out of our living room for a whole year. And I think we estimated we made like $2 an hour for the entire wow. year. But, <laughs> uh, and then what was scary is they all of a sudden we found out that they were, uh, the point was we were going to get residuals like a quarter for every game. And then we found out that the company was putting it on the shelf. So we weren't going to get any royalties. Uh, so, but luckily, we uh, the art director really loved it, and he talked him into uh, uh, reset, letting it continue until it was done. So, so uh, they ended up finishing the game and putting it out, and uh, we still didn't make hardly anything of it. But at least it didn't get shelved. Well, that's good. Yeah. So that was that kind of tided us over until. Until, Until nightmare it, came along. Yeah. Right. And, 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 and how, how did it, how did it come about getting onto nightmare? Was this Henry reaching out to you guys or, you know, uh, did, what, did you and Owen go as a package deal or were you hired individually? How did all that come about? Um, no, we weren't a package deal. Uh, I think Henry was always paying attention to, what was happening at Gumby because he was already imagining he loved stop motion. He had, he was imagining projects he wanted. And yeah. uh, I don't know when he started talking to Tim. I know they went to Cal arts together, but um, I know he was always paying attention to what was happening at the, the quality. Cause you know, Henry likes a really high, high production value. Sure. sure. And, and uh so then he started after Gumby um, getting in touch with, you know, the animators that he liked to work at Colossal Pictures. And I was lucky enough to be one of, you know, maybe a handful. It wasn't a package deal, um, but, you know, my animation was pretty good. So uh, he put me on. I got I I got a bunch, a couple of Doughboys and, and then also there were a couple other projects of colossal pictures that I worked on some Hershey's kisses and all state, you know, animating different things. And 
Sure. Um, so then uh, when Nightmare came along, he really did invite us all. I think it was initially probably me, Owen, Tim Hiddle, uh, Trey Thomas, Eric Layton, probably uh-huh. Anthony Scott, Mike Belzer. You know, there were, you know, he looked at our reels, basically. Sure. And the, the ones who, whose reels he really liked the animation. He invited us to start on Nightmare. And now, initially, the, the, they didn't think the animation quality was going to be paramount. Uh, they were thinking the story was going to be the driver. But yeah. once they got into it, they realized that they really want the animation to be really, really fine. So and, and thank God they did, because I yeah. have to tell you, Nightmare really is is the movie. I mean, it's it, it, it took stop motion to the nth degree at the time uh, and made it a feature film. And it did really reasonably well. I mean, not yes. fantastic when it first released, but mm-hmm. it did reasonably well. And it set mm-hmm. the stage, I think, for everything that followed. You know, there was more and more stop motion projects that were, you know, starting to move and Leica was getting set up. And yes. Like that. So, but the question I have for you is that here you are getting hired on to do your first feature film. Yes. And you were the only female animator uh, on that, on, on the crew with, I mean, you know, the, uh, for the, uh, the core group of animators that really made that movie, you were uh, the only female. Why? Well, I have a bunch of theories. Um, uh, it's very, very technical. Uh, I love building stuff in a shop. That's what I've, what I'm doing right now is I'm finishing a big bridge, a 40 foot bridge. Uh, uh, I mean, I didn't handle it all myself, but I designed it and had people, you know, I'm still finished. I am finishing most of it, but I love building things. And um, I work with my dad in his garage a lot. And what I saw in college was women were, had not mostly been very exposed to using saws and drill presses and you know all that stuff and hand tools hand tools yeah yeah like building and yeah it would it would and also cameras like a lot of women weren't that familiar with cameras and camera equipment and uh i was pretty intimidated by uh you know the 35 mil the mitchells i mean not after i mean we learned that all on gumby but it was you know somewhat intimidating and also, if you screw something up, it's very expensive. Yeah. You know. And by the way, some of those Mitchell cameras that were on, were used on Nightmare Before Christmas were actually purchased from Art Cloakey. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Because yeah. he probably had like twenty people at. He had two stages. Yeah. Uh, so he and, uh, he sold he sold several cameras to uh, the team at, uh, for Nightmare Before Christmas for them to oh, use. Okay. I, I didn't even know that, but I'm not surprised. Yeah. He I, I have the I have the story I have the story of that in my book on Nightmare Before Christmas. Oh, oh, good. Which, by the way, that. to our listeners, there's a bunch of pictures of not only Owen but also of Angie uh, in the book. 
along with a lot of the other animators and uh, craftspeople that were involved in the making of that movie. I'm just doing a shameless plug, Angie. I can't help myself. (laughs) (laughs) And now John wants to jump in. Oh, no, no. I I have to say, go go ahead, Angie. Go ahead. I can't wait for the book. I'm so excited about it. It's been so fun talking with Dave about it and digging up our pictures. And And, and, and by the way, I do want to say, you know, thank you publicly. I know I've thanked you a million times already, but, but I do want to say publicly and let our listeners know that you and Owen were incredibly helpful to me, not only with your time for me to interview you, but also as I was interviewing all these people that worked on Nightmare Before Christmas, sort of at the end of those interviews, I'd say, hey, you know, if you have any pictures or any kind of stuff that you saved, let me know if I can use any of it. And so all these people sent me these pictures. So the book is filled with pictures people have never seen before of the behind the scenes of making of Nightmare Before Christmas. So I'm very excited about that. Oh, that's going to be Go ahead, Al John. Go ahead. I was going to say, I put this in the chat. Um, there's a picture, Dave, uh, that you posted in one of your uh, articles on your website of uh, Angie behind the camera. It looks like you're getting ready to to capture, do a capture. Um, I don't know if that's true. I put that in the chat, but there you are surrounded by all the lights Recording and the cameras. Stopped. Recording in progress. Sorry. Sorry. Right. I hit the wrong button, folks. Sorry. That's me. Operator error. I'm trying to, I'm, trying to show, I'm, I'm actually trying to show this picture to Angie so she can see. Oh, there it is. Yeah. That's, is that the mayor? Who is that? I can't see. I think that's the, is that the mayor on top of the, or is that Doughboy? No, that's, uh, no, be that's the mayor. It's that's the mayor, the mayor yeah. right here. Yeah. yeah. That's the mayor. Yeah. Yes. And it looks like that's what you're, you're shooting there. I don't know if you're getting ready to do a frame there to, to capture that frame, but it looks really cool because there you are in your elements surrounded by all the tools <laughs> of the trade, all the lights, well, all the everything. And um, that's what we're going to use as part of our thumbnail for, for this podcast, but it well, looks really oh, cool. You're in so, your element. Thank you for that picture. That, that's like, that's a great picture. Yeah. I was, what I was doing there was uh, toggling back and forth on the frame grabber to uh, check the flow of animation. Ah, uh, the you frame grabber. To, like, you yeah. see, we've been talking That's about the frame that. grabber the past few uh, episodes, and there you are. So now we know what I uh, now I know what the frame uh, frame grabber is now. So. Yeah, that's totally what I was doing because what you do is you stand. You, you have to have your frame grabber really close to your work area so that you can keep looking and altering, toggle, alter, toggle until you get it just right. You know, so that's what that was. Oh man, that's awesome. Oh, what great thanks. work. What great work. I mean, oh, well, uh, yeah, I know I'm going to take this off, uh, off a, a, a separate tangent here for just a second, Dave, if you'll indulge yeah, yeah. me. Yeah, please do. But please do. Does it surprise you because you've been involved in so many great films? Does it yeah. surprise you of how much people have just opened their heart to the nightmare before Christmas over time and how it's kind of risen from even cult status to becoming this legendary film? Because I can say a bonafide holiday classic. It's a, it's a, it is a holiday classic. I mean, it's like writing the perfect wedding song. If I, as a musician and songwriter, if I could write a wedding song, my life would be set. But here you are, you know, you release the film and it's great. But then all this time later, it really is the perennial yearly watch by so many people. Does it surprise you at all? Oh, uh, I'm telling you, Owen and I, uh, every week, just say we can't 
think our lucky stars enough for nightmare. I mean, how many people get to work on a film that has legs that long? You know, <laughs> I, I am not surprised. And I'm so glad you asked that because this is my theory. That atmosphere at night at the studio was electric. It was my dream. It was my dream to work with a studio full of artists. Every single person there was an artist in their own right. I think even the production people had art backgrounds and it was just inspired. I and, mean, and, we were and, and so excited. And, and most of the artists that were working there and, and, and the, the crafts people, you know, the, the puppet makers and the set builders and stuff like that. Most of those people hadn't really worked on feature films. I mean, there were some folks that were you know, with the camera rigs and, right. and, and, and lighting and some, some of the set builders had worked over at ILM, right. uh, Lucasfilm right. and stuff like that. But right. for the most part, all of those animators and the people making the puppets and stuff like that, this was their first feature. Oh, uh, right. Exactly. And honestly, I mean, it was that the atmosphere was art saturated. And then there was Henry and Tim, who are these two amazing, they eat, sleep and breathe art. Both Visionaries. Yeah. And so you have those and Danny, the musicians, every so often the voice talent would come through. Um, and then, of course, the fact that this was the first one for most of us. Right. We were, it was just really exciting. You know, and, and I, I, my observation on this was that it was not just, you know, the fact that it was sort of a first feature film for all of these artists, but it was, yeah. it was this studio full of, full of artists that, that really didn't have the executive oversight that the films that Disney normally would have. You know, this this was being done outside of Los Angeles. It was up in San Francisco. It was a warehouse. Um, in, in some sense, I really felt like the studio executives didn't really care about this movie. Like they weren't focused on it. They were more focused on working with Tim Burton and having him do some live action films for Disney. And that's what they were focused on. So this was uh, this was their way to get into bed, so to speak, with Tim Burton. Uh, I I know that uh, I heard that kind of conversation when I was there that uh, everybody uh, in control of Nightmare in San Francisco really wanted a kind of a hands off approach. And that's why Kathleen Gavin was the producer is because she was really, really skilled at doing that. Right. Able to uh, satisfy what Disney needed, but yet left the artists have free reign. So and she was great to work with. Uh, We loved her. And uh, yeah, they they definitely we didn't have a lot of people. I didn't see anyone coming in and trying to control the story. Yeah, it it was it was all Henry and Tim. Was all right. Henry and Tim, and, and and also you know Danny because you know yes. they they kind of wrote it as a operetta where the each one right. of the songs was moving the story along. So right. so really you had those th- those three creatives at the at the top of the 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 pyramid, so to speak, you know, right. and, uh, right. and 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 it was those guys that were making the decisions. Exactly, and that was. Uh, kind of a rare thing to have that much money 
into a production like that. So I, I feel like, and because the stop motion is your, there's people using their hands to move the character. It's a real world. And it's a real set with a real world. I think that gets transmitted to people. And there's something very exciting on a subliminal level that gets communicated when people look at that. And I, I just think that's, that's my theory about why it just grabs people. There's this almost like a cult of nightmare fans. You know, like people are such fans. We see tattoos everywhere. I mean, it's so exciting for us. Every about once a month, Owen and I'll nudge each other because someone will be wearing a, like a nightmare shirt or a nightmare jacket or we'll see a nightmare tattoo, you know. And of course, we always want to run up to him and say, hey, you know, I did that shot. But, <laughs> <laughs> we, we don't. but well, I think by, that's, by, that, that's why. Uh, by the way, I was I, I was going to mention that in the book, there's a two page spread of tattoos. Oh. Uh, as part of sort of the afterlife of the movie, because there's there's fan art, there's tattoos, there's the the overlay at the haunted mansion at Disneyland. There's all this merchandise. There's live shows. There's you know it, it it's its own ecosystem that that just keeps growing and building as the years go on. I know I can't. We can't believe how lucky we are. I mean, we are just the luckiest people in the world. Now, I do want to sort of go back to that question. What was oh. it like to be the first and only female oh, animator right. on Nightmare Before Christmas? Did you did that make you feel different in any way? Were you treated differently? I mean, talk about your experience a little bit. Um, I can't say I was. Um, the only thing I could see, first of all, Henry Selleck was a very enlightened man. Um in his own right, and also his wife, Heather, is an art director her whole life. So I'm sure he got a sense of, you know, maintaining equality. Um, but uh, the only time I have to say I ever might have seen that is sometimes the guys would have beer night uh, on like every Wednesday, and I wouldn't hear about it. And some decisions would get made uh, in those kind of gatherings. So I did kind of you felt, feel you like felt left out just a little bit. It did. I, honestly, to tell you the truth, I honestly didn't care what I worked on. Right. I would, I'd work on anything and anything they gave me. I was excited about. I mean, I even had did some work on the candy corn titles that never got used. I yeah, was just excited. I, re yeah. I remember those. Yeah. And uh, so uh, I do have to say, I felt, and the, the the shop guys were just great to me because they would compliment. I think they were a little surprised at how adept I was at like the big machines. Cause they would say to me, like they would say, you know, so-and-so I don't, they would always watch the people with the, the dangerous equipment. Cause we didn't really have any training. Right. Just go in there and use like this, the, the big band saws and the big chop saws and, um, and so they would kind of keep their eye on them, whoever would walk in and use it to make sure that they weren't going to cut their hand off. And they did tell me, they said, you know, so-and-so, we're kind of nervous about him. But Angie, we agreed that we always felt really comfortable with her using the equipment. So I know they were 
aware. You know, they probably kind of wondered at, at first, like, yeah. is she going to be able to, is she going to cut her hand off with that <laughs> giant blade? Um, yeah, I know. I can't, I can't say that uh, uh, I ever, we were so busy. I, I do have to say sometimes when I was working, some of the guys who were a little in between, you know, like the crew in between their chores, when they had a lot of downtime, they would sit and they'd chat with me while I was trying to work. And I think it was because, you know, they didn't really think about how, you know, I think it was because I was a female maybe, and they were used to just talking to women. And it didn't really occur to them that they were interrupting me. You know, they would sit in my set. They would just chat and chat, chat, chat. Before I ask you what you're doing now, I want to ask you about Paul Barry who was oh, yeah. one of the animators. And just yeah. so our listeners know, Paul passed away in 2001, uh, but he was probably one of the most talented stop motion animators. Uh, and he was from Britain. He was from yeah. England. Uh, can you talk a little bit about him and, and give us a little insight into uh, how he was? Because it seemed that you guys were very good friends. Yeah, Paul and I really connected. I mean, we were just buddies right off the bat. It's just one of those things where we just really, really connected. And uh, we would hang out a lot together uh, on the weekends. Um, he had this, like, really wry, understated sense of humor. And uh, I was kind of like, ah, you know, I was always really loud. And uh <laughs> <laughs> it took me, uh, but uh, I would, we just had a lot of fun in San Francisco. I mean, San Francisco was still relatively new to us. So we were right in the middle of the nightclub district, really. So uh, Paul and I, and whoever, it was a big, it really was a big family. Um, a lot of, I, I remember telling people there was like a party every week and everybody would show up. You know, it's not like in L.A. where it's hard to get people to come. But um, uh, we would just hang out. We would go to a lot of stuff on the weekends together. And uh, I don't know. I, I, I know I told you that uh, story about when I took him to uh, Six Flags. And uh, I didn't even realize how petrified he was of those rides until he finally told me. He said, you know, Angie, I have to tell you, I'm actually deathly afraid of these. See, feel <laughs> my heart. My heart is like racing. And to me, it was like, Paul, why didn't you tell me? I never would have. But he just like never even told me. He just went along and went on the rides. And like, he never said no. But one of the things that was the funniest thing, I really learned, he was from Manchester, England. And apparently Manchester is like a, like a small town relative to like London and their etiquette. I never really understood. I never got it. I, you know, I, I was too coarse and American to be, I, they were very uh, cordial, but um, we went to this big cool restaurant. It was this big kind of like club restaurant bar kind of thing down in the middle of Moscone center. And, uh, uh, we wanted to get from street A to street B and you could go, you know, in one door and out the other door to get to the next street. And uh, so I said, come on, Paul, come on. And it was crowded with people and the doorman just opened the door for us. And then we went through 
And the doorman opened the door for us to get out and he never got over that. He just said, the doorman just opened you up. The doorman just opened the door for you. And I said, so what's the deal? And he said, that would never happen where I've come from. It was incredibly rude. It was incredibly rude to uh, go in a, a restaurant like that and just like breeze through and then leave. And the other, one of the other things is every time we would get together with a group, we would just all rearrange the chairs and the tables. And he was just blown away with that. Just like blown <laughs> away. He could not get over that. He thought it was outrageously rude. He didn't say rude, but he just astonishing to him. So he was, I'm sure there were a lot of things I did that he didn't tell me about that I probably was, probably was very offensive as far as etiquette. <laughs> well, you know, I, I have to say I lived, I lived in England uh, and Ireland for uh, like a year and a half. So there are things that are different, you know, yeah. Uh, oh, okay. you know, there, there are, you know, um, uh, certain words that mean different things between the two countries, you know, you know, right. at, yeah, like over there, you don't ever want to ask a woman for a ride uh, because it means something different than uh, it would if I asked you to give me a ride, you know, to wherever in your car, okay. you know, cause that's what okay. I'm meaning. I'm saying like, could you give me a ride uh, if you were going someplace that I was going to, but over in England, if you said that, you'd get a slap in the face, probably. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah. Yeah. But Paul was just, uh, why did we connect? We just really did. I mean, we were, we just had this very, uh, he was really, really good friends with Bonita, too. Bonita and Mike Johnson. And uh, he just was really easy to be around and interesting uh, I went to, when I went to his house a couple of times, he had done this full on beautiful puppet of Edward Scissorhands, mm. just perfectly made puppet. And so then I, I finally understood, Oh, I, I get why you want to be here. You know, this is, mm. he really, really wanted to be on this show. And he was the most fluid, incredible animator I've ever known. I mean, when he, it just like flowed out of him. They gave him so many shots, like the one where uh, Jack is, jumping out of a fountain and does a somersault. Uh, and it's just poetry. I mean, he just, and it just breathed it. He just breathed it out like a dancer. That's, that's what I heard from many of the other animators who spoke about him was, was that he was just an incredibly talented uh, stop motion. Animator. Yeah. I should say one thing to correct the record. I, I guess this has never been corrected. There's a shot credited to me that he actually did because I went on vacation and they gave it to him. When uh, Santa's reading the names of the characters off of the the paper. The, the naughty uh, or nice list. Yeah. Uh -huh. uh, Paul did that shot, but it's credited to me. And he uh. kind of gave me, he didn't, he wasn't happy about that. Uh, he, he's just kind of that Was that a shot that you had originally started on yeah. and he finished? I think I... I did run through practice shots. I never yeah. actually started on the hero, okay. but I did uh, run throughs. And then by the time uh, it got to where I, the hero was supposed to be shot, I was leaving for, we went to jungle. Yeah, You know something though, I got to tell you, it's not uncommon uh, for those types of things to happen on animated films, especially 
uh, artwork is credited to people who didn't do it and all kinds of things like that happen. It's just, it, you know, and it's, I would say not intentional. It just, you know, uh, those are mistakes that are made. Oh, right. Absolutely. You know, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. You absolutely. know, and, that, and, and I think with your situation, the, the scene <clears throat> was originally cast to you. So, right. so somewhere yes. along the line, nobody erased your name off of an exposure sheet or a document and put Paul's name in because he actually finished it. You know what I mean? Right. And yeah, that's really exactly. how, how those things happen. Yeah, so, exactly. So you, you've done all these incredible movies. What are you doing now? Well, right now I did what I promised myself I, my whole life is I'm trying to do my own artwork. Good. Uh, for my whole career, when I'm working on something, I get all these ideas and I'm just thinking, Oh, I wish I had the time to do that. So now I'm doing it. I have one sculpture in a gallery right now. Um, and I like, I I'm building things like that bridge is, is a sculpture for me. I'm starting to experiment with building, uh, big structures. Mm-hmm. Eventually, uh, incorporating my ideas into a bigger structure. This was a, a big experiment. I mean, it was kind of dangerous, but <laughs> it worked out pretty good. It's a very sturdy structure, but it's probably two tons. Uh, wow. Well, one ton, one ton, one ton. And wow. uh, it's, uh, it's very, it, it's really sturdy. And what are you going to do with that? Where are you going to well, display I, it? I, oh, no, the, the, the bridge is actually just uh, at a house I own. Oh, okay. It's like, uh, it's a kind of a mini farm and it connects, it. uh, two sections of the, the flower nursery. Oh, wow. Um, so I had a, so, so it's actually a practical bridge. Yes. It's a practical bridge, okay, got but it. it's like, uh, I'm experimenting the, the, the sculpture in the, the gallery. I started experimenting with, uh, infinity mirrors. Uh-huh. Like, uh, uh, and so I've got like, uh, an old antique, clock case i took the clock out and i made an infinity mirror and uh it's got lights inside and some artifacts and it looks pretty cool and um uh, i'm hoping to start incorporating um cg characters in those uh-huh. so i just have to uh i know a lot of a lot of different i i know how to model and light and make backgrounds but not i need to learn more to create a whole cg character and I have a bunch of ideas. So, so you're doing your own artwork basically now. Yes. Yes. That's, that's fantastic. Doing. So yeah. final question for you, unless Al John, you have anything. Uh, but the final question I was going to ask you is really, what are your thoughts on nightmare before Christmas, almost 30 years on now, next year's the 30th anniversary. I, I just love it. I love it. I love it. Um, when we first got done with it, it was kind of hard to look at it. We, we, we worked so many hours. Um, I remember I actually, I was, I was surrounded in black dubatine for so many months. I actually started to get sunlight deprivation. I'm pretty sure. Cause I couldn't <laughs> look at the color black, uh, without feeling this wave of sadness. Anyhow. Um, but as the years went on, I really loved, and of course I see every mistake, what I think is a mistake, every mistake in my shots. Oh, oh, look at that chatter in his left arm. Every, every artist who's worked on an animated film has, has the same thoughts. 
Well, that's comforting to hear. Yeah. Uh, I after as the years go on, they don't. It doesn't bother me as much. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, I just think uh, I really love it. I love it. I hope it keeps going. And uh, I love. Um, there's a a guy here in Milwaukee who I don't know if he does it this year, but he's made replicas of the sets. He got all the neighbors on two sides of the street to let him put replicas of the sets in every yard for an entire block. <laughs> wow. And create, it's create just, a um, Halloween town on one. Yeah. It, it's amazing. Wow. So I, I'm very excited. Uh, very excited. I hope it keeps going. We talk about, I wonder if they'll ever do a sequel. I will absolutely try to get on that. If they, <laughs> if they try to do a sequel, if they want to do a stop motion sequel, I'm going to try to get on that for sure. I, you know, something though, I, I kind of feel like the movie is, it's, it, it is what it is. It's its own thing. And mm -hmm. I don't think, I think they'd ruin it if they did a sequel. I get a yeah. sense that everybody knows that they could never do make a better film. No, so but I, like, think, I, I think, I think they, I think they could make another sort of offshoot of the franchise if they wanted to, I don't even want to call it a sequel. I think okay. they could do it, but they'd have to be willing to allow a crew of artists to go into a warehouse and be left alone to make the movie with, with little to no oversight from the studio, <laughs> because that's, that's really, that's the secret sauce of the success of the nightmare before Christmas. I, I agree. I totally agree. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I totally yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I honestly, it's uh, it, it, when you look at it, you, you have to you have to sort of say that there's there's that. Angie, thank you so much for coming on to the Skull Rock podcast to talk with us. Oh, thank you. So the, it's just the, been the so live, fun. Live studio audience is going nuts. Oh, <laughs> I'm so excited. I just it was a, just a pleasure. Uh to talk to you. I hope we can talk again sometime. Uh, uh, we have stories about uh, different various shots. Maybe we can uh, talk yes. again about individual. There's always many shots have individual stories surrounding them. So absolutely. I'd love to do that. And, uh, and I look forward to actually seeing you and Owen in person one of these days. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. We have a uh, uh, possibility of going to the Annie's and we're definitely uh want to get together when we're Absol in LA. Absolutely. That'd I look forward fantastic. to it. Oh, me too. That'd be so fantastic. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you. This is so, so much fun. Thank you so much, Aljan. It's really great to see you and talk with you. So, thank you. oh, by the way, that's the gate back there. That's I, the I actual was just gate. about, I, yes, I yeah. was going to ask you about that, but I knew that that was the set piece. Yeah, that's the actual gate. Uh, they give the shop guys gave it. I got to tell you one more thing. This is going to make you cry. Yeah. Go uh, for at it. the end of every, every set had like four duplicates and uh, they were told by production that uh, they had to all go in the garbage. Nobody could take them home. So there were like three or four dumpsters behind the studio that were filled with that kind of stuff. Wow. And uh, some of us raided, that wasn't a raid. Someone gave that to Owen, but I wish I had raided it. I was too much of a good soldier. 
Well, uh, hey, do. listen, I could I could sit and tell you stories about dumpster diving at the Disney studios <laughs> back in the day when they were, they, you know, when, when it was raining out, they'd, they'd throw stacks of cells out into the <gasps> into the dumpster and, and, you know, people would be dumpster diving, pulling cells out. So that was, yeah. <laughs> we well, could go on and on, but anyway, yeah, we could. Angie, thank you very much for being on the Skull Rock podcast, and we will look forward to catching up with you again soon. Okay, thank you. It's just been the best. Thank you so much. Your attention, please. (laughs) Now loading on track number one for a trip around Walt Disney's Magic Kingdom. Skull Rock podcast. All aboard. Your main street to the world of Disney. I love her enthusiasm. Uh, she is a delight, isn't she? Angie Glock. I love her. She really is. I mean, it was fantastic talking with her, you know, uh, her and, uh, Owen Clate, um, you know, just, uh, really terrific, uh, animators, uh, you know, she and Owen are married and, uh, you know, just, uh, hearing the stories firsthand and, and, and why she thought she was, you know, kind of unique in the stop motion world. You know, she it's it's unique that she came in at a time when there wasn't a whole lot of female animators and being as technically savvy as she was to do all the equipment stuff that was necessary. I mean, you know, uh, in a male dominated business, I mean, hats off to her because she's great. She continues to be great. So uh, hats off to you, Angie. What, what a great interview. Great to, to, to get to know you and shine a light on your incredible career. So. We have an immense uh, month coming up because now it is Halloween. Thank you so much for for you know listening to the show. But man, do we have a great month lined up for you? Uh, I I don't want to spoil it, so maybe Dave. I don't know if you want to tease it because it's going to be crazy. I'll Jeez. tease it next week. Tease it next week. Okay. Great. <laughs> you see, Dave, you, you hold stuff so close to the vest. But uh, once again, thank you for listening this far. If you love Disney and pop culture, please subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. We're on Google, Spotify, Apple, Stitcher Radio, Sorcerer Radio Network at srsounds.com. Big ups to our friends at Sorcerer Radio and so much more. You can check out all of our social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and uh, we'd love to hear from you over email as well. Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com or John at SkullRockPodcast.com. And uh, don't forget our great friends at the Old Mill Press, as well as Sure Microphones. You can check out their links on our show notes. Dave, you've got the final word. And, you know, also I would say uh, visit uh, DavidBosser.com. Oh, yes. Uh, Al John mentioned earlier in the show, uh, there's a bunch of articles there. There's some articles on Nightmare Before Christmas. And uh, check that out. It's all free, DavidBosser.com. And with that, we look forward to having you back here next week, right here on the Skull Rock Podcast. I'm Al John Goh, co-host of the Disney List podcast as heard on Sorcerer Radio, as well as Skull Rock podcast here with my wife, Kristen. Hello. Hello. You are an earmarked agent who books Disney travel vacations for people all the time. Give our listeners a reason why they want to give you a call instead of just booking a trip by themselves. Well, I can do all of the legwork for them. I have expertise. I've been to the Disney parks 
well over a hundred times. So they've got that knowledge at their hand as well as it saves them time and money. Where can people get in touch with you so that they can book their next Disney cruise, Disney park trip, Adventures by Disney? They can contact me at theme parks and cruises at gmail.com. <laughs>